I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It is Monday, which means it's time for the Front Free Weekend Review with me, Adam Boltwood, the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Enjoy your ride. And of course, Dave O'Brien, live from Manchester. Adam, you mean live from Old Trafford? Live from Old Trafford, Dave? What are you doing up there? Oh, yeah. Oh, I went to the game yesterday and I, I stuck around. Um, I just came to take some photos and go to the museum, go to the shop, you know, the usual. Dave, you've never been to the museum before at Old Trafford? No, I'm going to do the stadium tour as well, Lawrence. I've never been in there, really. <laughs> well, before you get to the wow. stadium tour, Dave, we have got some podcasting to do. So much to cover on today's weekend review. First up, all the Premier League action, including, yes, United's win over Spurs. And, of course, Leicester's demolition of Pep Guardiola's Manchester City on Saturday. We've also got journalist Ewan McTeer on the line in part two to give us the lowdown on the Liga. Before, in part three, I'll be talking to Chris Hennage about our game of the weekend, which this weekend is, of course, the MLS Cup final, which saw Seattle crowned champions. Myself and Chris will also give our thoughts on today's UCL draw, which, among other things, saw Arsenal, of course, draw Bayern Munich. We'll also give you an update on the action around Europe. But first, brief, seeing as you're at Old Trafford Day, let's start with Manchester United, a 1-0 win over Tottenham. Uh, a game, a few chances, some entertaining football, but in the end, a match lacking quality with one error and one goal proving decisive. Would you agree? No, I completely disagree with that. I, I, I hate the hmm. media responses come out of it that it was a poor game of football, that, it, that there was no chances in the game. I thought United created some pretty good opportunities on the counter-attack and they looked very, very good. Henrik McTillian, obviously the, the forefront and the, the pivotal player and all those breaks. He's just so, he's a lovely player to watch in terms of the way he glides with the ball. It's so nice to see him just come onto his, you know, from the right side, come onto his left foot. So seamlessly between switching between his left foot, his right foot. But, you know, you think about all the chances that United had and McTillian was definitely involved in those. Um, I think the game could have been completely different as well if, if Pogba had taken his chances. He had two pretty big chances within the Tottenham penalty area in that free kick that hit the bar. It could have been completely different. But United looked good on the counter-attack and it's, it's positive that they finally held out to that, you know, to, to keeping that one-goal lead and pushing through the line. And Tottenham, Tottenham didn't impress me at all, though, Adam. What did you think? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just uh, to yeah, it back a notch. I said just, it. Uh, I said it. I want to talk about Manchester United first. Just um, talk to me about their midfield, Dave, because obviously <laughs> um, it seemed that they won the midfield battle in many ways. Herrera, of course, was very impressive. Uh, and your highlight in Pogba perhaps should have taken his chances. But in terms of his midfield play, he seemed to dominate uh, Dembele, which doesn't happen often. No, it was very... I really. Well, the one player that I did like from Tottenham was Wanyama. I thought he um, played very well and was very aggressive on Paul Pogba. Again, Paul Pogba having a direct opponent last week, it was Ngulu. Not Angula Conte, sorry, Adrissi Gay. They're both, they're both exactly the same type of player, but got the wrong run out. But he sort of had a battle with him last week and he lost. I'd say that Paul Pogba lost his battle this week, but this week he was, a, he was very, very good. Really interesting component of the game where United were targeted, targeting Pogba on set pieces, so they were looking to go long to him. So I think he won something like 57% of like 11 aerial duels and they were all sort of dropped on 
the zone between Victor Wanyama and the right back. But it was a t it was a tactic from Manchester United and it worked very very well. But yeah, Pogba should have taken his chances. What he did on the ball was very good. Completed 20 passes in the final third. That's five more than any other player on the pitch. But he was he was very good at uh, getting to there. You know, he, he carried the ball quite well. But again, his decision making sometimes was a little bit wrong in the final third. He kept on trying to beat his man when potentially a simple pass was on. Um, you know, to keep the move flowing, he'd, he'd slow it down a little bit. So, so I think that's something that he definitely needs to adjust. But he got himself into the right areas, which was positive. And on another day, would have scored. We've got to remember that Paul Pogba was a young player. I was sat next to a fella um, in the strip for them that was like, oh, Paul Pogba should have scored 20 goals by now for his 89 million quid. Come on, Paul, shut up. You know, seriously. <laughs> Pack it in for a goddamn second. <laughs> uh, what about the uh, defensive performance, Dave? Because obviously, uh, I saw Phil Jones and Marcus Rojo down on mm. paper, and I was kind of like, oh, you know, maybe Harry Kane's going to have some <laughs> luck here. Didn't really happen for him. I mean, in terms of that performance, in terms of that win, it's the first home win since September. Do you think. Manchester United are now on the verge of, of, of clicking, of being a very good team and making that push for the top four? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, you look at, you, you did mention the two centre-backs, but firstly, let's talk about the defensive midfielder, Michael Carrick again. Just so good. Whenever you watch Michael Carrick live, you, you get a real appreciation of what he does on the ball and how um, this calming factor within the side, how, you, you know, when he does win it back, he keeps it very simple and, and he won't lose the ball in really dangerous areas. So he was a really good shield in front of the back two. But again, the back two were excellent. Marcus Rojo made 16 clearances in the game, but only completed three passes. So that just shows you what United were doing in terms of they weren't playing out of the back, they were going long, which is a very, very smart thing if you're playing Spurs, because the Spurs press is very, 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 very good. And you look at Phil Jones and he's really stepping up and he's, he's maturing. And I'd, I'd say this is the best football he's ever played in his career um, in terms of defensively being very aware, being switched on and doing the right thing at the right time, always making the right decision. And it's something very unlike the Phil Jones that we've seen in recent years that is a bit rash, that is a bit, you know, the blood rushes to his head, he does something stupid. But he's very, very uh, commanding. Uh, in terms of the game, he made five interceptions, no player on the pitch made more there. But it was just his overall um, sort of command of his zone and he, he looks comfortable, which is good to see. And he is just a centre-back. I think that might be one thing that has gone wrong in his career, that he has played at full-back, he has played at cent uh, central midfield, although that he did... You know, he had some very good performances there. Maybe that has cost him. And now he's playing centre-back again. He is a centre-back. He isn't great on the ball, but he's very physical. Um, his timing of his tackle was very, very good. So I was very impressed by both centre-backs again, which mm. at the start of the season, if you're like Rojo Jones, you're a centre-back pair and it's, <laughs> it's going to be looking good. I was like, no, no, no not a clean sheet um, in them. No way. Why did, you, why did you feel compelled to boo Fellaini, Dave? It was obviously... <laughs> I did not boo Marlon Fellaini. No, you did I turned around and gave everyone the death stare. <laughs> Did you? I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, I, 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 you know, you can't do that. It doesn't matter what a player does. In a it was only a small of, section of fans. Yeah, it's it? a, yeah, it's a small section of fans. But mm. then, no, it did come from the Stratford end tier too, which is a little bit annoying because they're supposed to be the guys that are supporting the team. And, and it was a set, you know, it definitely it wasn't even a section. It was a band of maybe 50 merry men that had a too many pints too early on in the day and got a bit giddy. But Maron Fellaini came on and United won the game. So there, you know, that can go against what they think about Maron Fellaini. Um, and I feel sorry for Maron Fellaini because he, for me, he's been very good this season. He's been very improved. And because he's made one rash mistake, everyone's artist, oh, Maron Fellaini, rubbish. No, go back and watch the game against Hull City. Absolutely fantastic at defensive midfield, you know, partnering Paul Pogba. So that, again, football's all about bandwagons and some people jump on them too much, but never, never boo your own team and never boo your own players. That's not a United, that's not boo your own team. way. Unfortunately. Didn't didn't Mourinho dedicate the win to Fellaini? Yeah, too right, and it was good because I think Mourinho heard the reaction too right. again. The, the the thing that um you know you probably didn't even hear 
what you didn't realise when you are watching it on the telly was, when he went to warm up, see, people were giving him grief. Like, he went to warm up and, and you could hear, like, these murmurs, oh, no, boo. Then, 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 obviously, the rest of the fans are giving him the round of applause. So, again, it's a small minority of people that need to learn that you support your players full stop and that's mm. it. We're not, we're Man United, we're, we're, we're supposed to be a classy fan base and if you start doing shit like that, then we're going to go down the way of... Careful. You know, a bad way. A way that's not United. So, obviously... That, yeah, a bad way. A Careful bad, of what team it, it was, um, you say Mourinho sort of uh, dedicated to Interflame there. He also singled out Hugo Lloris, um, one of the few Spurs players, I think it's fair to say, had a good yeah. individual performance. Uh, there are a number of poor individual performances. Uh, yeah, that's Alli. a backhanded compliment though, isn't it? I mean, no, of course. when Mourinho says, oh, Lloris had a good game, what he's trying to say there is... I was just using it shots. as a transition, Lawrence. I was just trying to it's a, it's transition not a good on one. to talk about it's how Hugo Lloris made a few saves. He played well, but not many Spurs players actually did um, a poor performance from Delhi Alley. His performances are starting to frustrate Spurs fans, I think it's fair to say. Um, mainly lack of consistency there. And it's not just Ali in terms of his form, it's his other players. Um, and it's the team as a whole, really. The, the lack of consistency is frustrating. I said before the game that the game against Manchester United away from home would be a measure of where Spurs are. I think the result shows that we're, we're still short of our best, but we're finding our way there. Players are coming back from injury. Uh, play, having Toby Alderweireld back is, is a massive boost for us. Um, you know, we're still missing Eric Lamella. I think uh, he sets the tone in terms of his intensity, in terms of the pressing game from the front line, um, and we are missing that. Uh, um, he is back-to-back away defeats now for Spurs. We haven't won away from home since September. So that is worrying. But I think we now have four very winnable fixtures in a row. Uh, Hull and Burnley at home before Southampton and Watford away. Gives us a chance potentially to get some momentum, to find our form, to find our feet. So yeah, you know, a, a disappointing result, a disappointing performance. But I think, uh, you know, to, to look at it in perspective and in context, you know, Spurs are, uh, are trying to find the level that we were at last season and before the international break uh, early this season. And hopefully these games give us a chance to do that. But enough of my team, Lawrence. Let's move on to your team, well, yeah. Liverpool. Well, let's do it then. Um, a two-all yeah. home draw with West Ham. I think a lot of people were expecting the Reds Desmond. to beat West Ham at home. But... Do you think there's been a bit of an overreaction to this draw? Because, I mean, uh, I saw a lot of people bemoaning the fact that without Coutinho, you know, Liverpool rubbish. Oh, Carrius has cost us three or four points in a week. Others saying, oh, the Reds are out of a title race altogether. Of course, a frustrating result. But, I mean, what's your, what's your sort of reading on this one? I just think it's overreaction on the wrong things. Um, you know, I mean, Jurgen Klopp's given constant uh, perspective on the way that a goalkeeper needs to bed in, develop those kind of things. And essentially, he has no other option. Uh, so people can try and call him out or whatever, or try and say that Karius is a bad goalkeeper. But the statistics do sort of say differently, uh, or at least they did when he first arrived in the league. Um, and history of other goalkeepers as well would probably indicate that he does need some time um, to at least feel more comfortable. Uh, because, it, you know, I imagine it is quite different for him. Having said that, he's made some really bad mistakes. I, I still think, though, um, so, for instance, listening to the commentary that Andy Townsend gave on what was being sports was stunning. Like, if Car- if Carrius moved, he was like, he's, he's in the wrong position. Or if he, for the second goal, when, who was it, Antonio scored? Yeah. Um, there was a there was a catalogue of errors or a catalogue of very unusual things that happened leading up to that goal. Um, and Andy Townsend said he should have been at his feet, should have been at Antonio's feet getting the ball. And I thought, that's that's such an unusual thing to say. 
Um, because, it, you know, goalkeepers have a number of options, but going to a player's feet and possibly giving away a penalty would have been even worse, surely. Um, having said that, yeah, you're right, Liverpool should be beating this West Ham side, although this West Ham side also drew um, to, to another significant North West side recently. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it, it, I think the point is that West Ham played the game perfectly and Liverpool and Klopp haven't worked out a system and a tactic yet to unlock a team like West Ham. Coutinho or no Coutinho, uh, Liverpool, you know, wouldn't have gotten the result. Uh, I don't think Coutinho is the main difference maker there, uh, not against West Ham anyway. Um, uh, and uh, I also just think there were some silly errors on Liverpool's part. And you can sort of see Klopp's wry smile at that point, just sort of <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, internally and externally bemoaning those errors, but not in such an aggressive way I thought it was that it makes it though, look that like a disaster. Obviously, the, the, the Bournemouth uh, defeat was obviously very disappointing. And again, uh, the defensive frailties were exposed there. But a lot of people saying, oh, Joel Matip uh, is coming back. I think, you know, we'll look a lot more solid when that happens. But, yeah, I mean, he, to be, he to be fair, Liverpool, Liverpool did goal, look... Yeah. I mean, he was culpable, but at the same time, he also made some great tackles during the game um, and, and was probably one of the more, more uh, solid fixtures in Liverpool's back line. Um, I, I think, if I'm honest, at times Liverpool look a little too gung-ho. Um, they commit in the wrong places and leave themselves open to making silly mistakes in the wrong areas. And early on, Liverpool were playing lovely football. I think the Anfield fans are going to start to realise that it's about end product as well. Um, because, you know, we've all been happy, and I was happy to say, you know, happy to watch this Liverpool team play. And, you know, I still am. They played some lovely football yesterday, probably some of the best football in the league. Um, but I, I still think that they, you know, for all the lovely football and the flicks and the passes and the one-twos, they, they only got one goal in that time. Um, and so I think Liverpool, and the Klopp said it himself, got a little too overexcited and maybe a little over-exuberant. And, you know, I, you know, it's great to have confidence, but that confidence has to serve a purpose. Otherwise, it's just essentially it's arrogance. Hmm. It's um, it's an interesting one for Liverpool in that it feels like the the title talk has sort of dissipated in the last few weeks. I think they've won one of the last four in the league. They're only six um, off of Chelsea now. But do you think that this has sort of halted the the momentum of Jurgen Klopp's side, Lawrence? Um, I, th I think people expected to win against these two sides. Um, I think in the press, it's probably halted the momentum. But I think uh, Liverpool—I mean, Liverpool—don't look to to have really sustained any huge issues uh, apart from maybe going forward. It, it was pointed out in the commentary. I think it's been pointed out before that they didn't really have that many options off the bench. Um, so whether it's sort of halting the momentum because they are playing with essentially quite a relatively threadbare team at the moment or at least have done um i imagine that with one or two players injected back into that squad it could um inject a little more confidence having said that they still scored two goals and conceded some silly ones so i don't think it feels as awful for liverpool fans as as, as maybe um some people want it to or some people think it should you know they're still in, in the top in the top um section where they want to be in the league so I, I just don't think it's as bad as all those people are pointing out I still think the, the analysis is really poor and I think the carrier's analysis is really poor um, and I'm the way that Phil Neville doubled down on match of the day last night um, just to have a dig at Carrius because Carrius said something in a pre-arranged interview um, about Gary Neville I, I find maybe more uh, telling than the actual fact that Phil Neville had any analysis on a goalkeeper. It's a it, it's a strange situation in that Jamie Carragher himself has come out and said, "What did he come out and say?" He said, "You know, 
Uh, he said he hasn't seen anything in the performances that makes him think that he is uh, good enough to be a Liverpool goalkeeper. I'm thinking more of the bit where he said, shut up and do your job, I think is what he said. But then at the same time, Carragher was criticising journalists for bringing that up to Jurgen Klopp in the press conference, saying, you know, maybe they should think of their own questions instead of relying on, on what I'm saying. It all seems maybe they should. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, why is that not fair enough to bring that up and say, you know... Uh, I mean, I, th- I think Carragher is more of a divisive character. I think sometimes he says things to um, the detriment of what he believes is the positive. I don't quite know what Carragher. I don't quite know what Carragher's point. The point of character, Jamie Carragher is at the moment. Well, the um, point of him is just because he says, you know, if he if he's trying to serve a purpose for Liverpool, he's not. Um, and if he's trying to serve a purpose for his own media career, then he's not. Um, it just seems that he's in the public eye, and that's that's. Not necessarily the best way to go, is they've it? Got give, it takes they've got to give them. controversial opinions, haven't they? They've got to say something. Uh, no, they don't. They they, they do. can give good. No, they can just give good analysis. I think Gary Neville has gotten very. I mean, he's gotten things wrong, but I don't think he's shopped himself around on giving controversial opinions. I think he's shopped himself around on giving opinions uh, which are based on very real facts. I think Gary Neville was right in what he said. Um, I also think Carius has a right to reply, mm. and I, I think it. I, I just find it weird when people um, to go out of their way, and like someone like Phil Neville will go out of his way to say something and give very little analysis on a goalkeeper. So he'll say, "Well, he, you know, he is poor. He could have done better." Uh, yeah, well, go ahead then and do some analysis on that. Don't just say, you know, he, he got a. You know, it's a weak what analysis. Wrist. You wanna, what analysis do you want to see? Well, I mean, uh, personally, I think Car- uh, he should have been moving faster. I would rather see a goalkeeper on uh, do some analysis like that on a show than a midfielder and uh, uh, someone who's just received an OBE or a CB or whatever. Do you want me to get the footage out, Lawrence, to do a little bit of analysis on my carriers as underperformed yes, this get, season in da- the Premier League? Dave, Dave, I mean, Dave, he's, you know, uh, for a sample size... We've hardly got anything that's good enough to go on so far. No, but what, what I'd say in terms of what he's doing wrong at the moment is where he's parrying shots without even like massively looking into his technique, whether he's in the right body position, whether he's standing up too much, whether he's crouching too much. He He's parrying shots into the wrong area. And that's the first thing that as a goalkeeper, potentially, technically, you need to look at. Um, but that, which could just the, thing be is, Dave, thing. the thing is, Dave, that, has, that didn't affect Liverpool's game at all against West Ham. But um, it did do against Bournemouth. That's what I mean. There. It, it, no, I mean it, it, it did. It did, it did again. It did so it against Bournemouth, um, I, and, and I think it is also Carrius adapting to a new style of goalkeeping in the Premier League. I think he's he's training with I think it's uh, Manninger and obviously Mignolet, um, and I think he's trying to adapt to a new league. I, uh, yeah, Should we give him I a break? He's I mean, he's, he's twenty three, so like you say, maybe he's entitled Absolutely to come out and not. say we're not we're not we're not hammering David De Gea for like two three seasons. Yeah, we were. Like, <laughs> Dave, then, you're doing it out of spite, then, Dave. You're, you're doing it out of spite. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it out of spite. you know what, David? You know what, David? I actually think in the end, then he might come back and thank you because you know there are people out there who say that David De Gea thrived in the end on those people who went against him. And exactly, it was exactly. used to motivate him. I, I don't think that means that you have to treat everyone like shit in the way that some of the people <laughs> did. Um, I think there's a middle ground. I just think balance. there's he, too he many deserves, people making too much of it. Um, he deserves you know, criticism, I think. The, Liverpool's back line. Liverpool's back line were not. Um, they didn't protect the way, him well he, enough. No, of course, of course. But you know, uh, I mean, that's true in terms of the way the the second goal happened. It seemed to be a, a number of errors that led to that. Um, 
the free kick as well, you know, Adam Alana making a, a rash challenge out there. But you, you, unfortunately, you sort of do judge a goalkeeper more individually than you would the rest of the team. And when you, you sort of see it like that, though, those sort of shots or those sort of incidents, you feel like perhaps he could have done, uh, perhaps he could have done better. Doesn't mean he should escape criticism. Maybe it is a little bit overblown, and maybe we should give him a little bit of a break. But um, I think he definitely still deserves. think down the other end, Liverpool should be creating more as well, and maybe not giving their goalkeeper reason to, to feel do. so. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, they don't. They're giving them too much work to do. But also, if your team wins, then your goalkeeper can get away with more mistakes. They and are... essentially, you know, it's the same as if it's the same as when West Ham got away from Anfield with a draw. They made up for their goalkeeper's mistakes. What did you think I, of? I also um, think, by the way, what performance in the second Firmino, half? Firmino was, was not good enough in, for the whole game. I, I don't think he was. It's one of those games where you think he's going to look lost in this game from the first touch. You could tell he was going to look lost. It was a, he was he was in more places in the second half. I think he looked more motivated to try and get the ball. And when he did have the ball, it was better movement. But I, I still don't think it was the right decision to play him in this game. I, and yeah. at times, I think he looks a little bit lost. They're without still... uh, a partner out there. Can, can I also just say, I don't think West Ham played all that well. Just just want to slip that one in there. Uh, I, I think West Ham were really... You mean West Ham Slav weren't Village great. isn't doing very well this season, Lawrence? They were, re- <laughs> they were not a good... They, they, literally, they literally sat back and relied on Antonio to break. And they won't be able to do that against every side because not every side's going to mess up like Liverpool did. Yeah. Um, so although so again, the pundits' union last night on TV uh, was having it loving <laughs> on Slavin again. But um, the, uh, yeah, don't worry, he'll come good. He'll come yeah, good. Uh, Sorry, what, on what evidence? <laughs> on what evidence do you base it? Considering that you just slagged off a 23-year-old goalkeeper who's got as good a stats or close to as good a stats as David de Gea has had in recent years in another league, I'd imagine that you should probably look at the previous record of Slavin Bilic. Hmm. Yeah, I'd do that a lot Should we give Slavin Bilic some slack no. in that he's, no, he's spent, just he come a, through? He spent a fuck ton of money in this. A, <laughs> a run of very difficult fixtures with injuries to key players. <laughs> now they've got Burnley and Hull at home. Very winnable games. Could look a bit different, you know. Come up. To I Christmas. think that 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 sounds hey, that hey, sounds hey, interesting. Just... I mean, Adam, it, it's certainly an interesting one considering that. When we said that on a podcast, I mean, I know that we're probably just going on bad logic here, but um, just a few weeks ago, he has had four, maybe even five really shit games in a row, Billy. <laughs> but even then, he, he drew against uh, Stoke before that. He lost to Everton before that. Won it. With, he was the last team to win against Chelsea, I'm imagining, in the EFL Cup. Um, won one nil against West Ham, won one nil against Palace, drew against Middlesbrough, lost to Southampton. It's just such a ske- such a sketchy fixture list. Yeah, I'm, not, then, saying, I'm not saying I, I guess, I guess what I'm, well, but Liverpool. What I'm criticising is the, the double standards of the press. Is that the double standards go like this? Slavon Bilic, surely he'll come through this. Oh, it's an American uh, managing Swansea. He won't come through this. Oh, he's had a difficult run. Uh, you, you know, it, it, it must be hard for Slavon. Well, you know, he, uh, this American has got to make a big impact on the club when he first comes in. There's the massive double standards in the press and the way that the writing goes. Let's uh, move on to Chelsea. Uh, they are six points ahead of Liverpool, nine wins in a row. Uh, Dave, uh, a 1-0 win over West Brom. The narrative says it was a win of champions. They didn't play well, but the individual brilliance of players like Diego Costa saw them through, Dave. Well, if you beat a Tony Pulis West Brom side when they're bang in form, you're going to win the Premier League. It's simple as that. Um, it was a very good performance from Chelsea. I thought they 
they, they did what they needed to do. I think that is, it is a performance of champions, but again, defensively, they were very, very good. West Brom have been in a brilliant run of form. They've been beating teams left, right and centre, the likes of Matt Phillips, um, Rondon. Brunt has been a very a, a big danger in we, uh, you know, from wide areas, delivery with his left foot. Mm. They look, Chelsea look solid. They look very, very good. David Luiz had a, an interesting start to the game, but then grew into the game and, and again, performed reasonably well. And you, You're looking at him this season in the Premier League. He's yet to make a defensive error. So that's credit to David Luiz and how he's potentially evolved moving back to Chelsea because from all accounts, he was awful for PSG last season. Mm. Um, but, you know, Chelsea, they are looking very, very good with Matic back in the side. Again, they've, they've got a variation. They've brought Fabregas off the bench and they've got something. I think that's the really interesting thing about Chelsea is they do have, they can change the game. You know, they mm. can go and throw another striker on. They could go and throw an attacking midfielder on. They, they have that, they have like a good level of quality in terms of William coming off the bench. There's a lot there. And I think the only thing that potentially could catch them out is if these wingbacks get injured and they may have to switch to another system by default. But if not, I think they'll be fine. Because they, they do have it. Uh, nine men against uh, behind the ball, I think, a lot of time for West Brom. Difficult to break down, but as you said, Chelsea managed to do it. Nine wins in a row. I wonder if they're going to beat the all-time Premier League record, which I'm still dubious about in terms of consecutive wins. It's held by Arsenal uh, between February 2002 and August 2002. So technically it's over two seasons. So does that, does that count? As a nah, that's um, cheating, that's cheating that, really mate. count, do you know what I mean? But that is the official um, longest sort of consecutive run. But they had the summer break, you know. I, I want to see someone do it in a, in a season. It's got to be one season, surely. Yeah, I don't feel like it's consecutive, is it? Yeah. But anyway, listen, uh, Chelsea are on nine. They've got Sunderland and Palace at home up next. They've then got Bournemouth and Stoke away. So it could potentially be the game against Spurs at White Hart Lane that determines whether they, they do equal that record, which I think would be... Uh, Oh, just had a little bit of extra spice, you know. Could be interesting. Um, but Chelsea... Season uh, that. Clear at the top of the table. Um, they march on. Just Do you ever think it's a bit weird, Adam, about the whole thing where people go, that was a performance of champions? Oh, yeah. You know, they, you know, well, I mean, champions get the 1-0 wins, don't they? Yeah, but then a number of other sides also have 1-0 wins this weekend. They did. They did indeed. But before we get onto that, let's get on to Leicester. The big game on Saturday. The shock result, I think it's fair to say, Lawrence. Performance of champions. Um, performance of champions from Leicester. The the champions, literally, 4-2 they won against Manchester City. How much of this win do you think, Lawrence, was down to Leicester uh, being good? And how much was it down to Man City being bad? I think it was down to Leicester looking to exploit Man City's weaknesses. Mm. Bam. Um, I, also, I also just feel like uh, every now and again you're going to have a striker that gets into those positions and essentially get they get away with it. It was, um, I mean, afterwards, obviously, Guardiola came in for a lot of criticism. And people point out that it's now four wins in 15 in all competitions now for City. He started facing pretty serious questions. Obviously, defence, Dave, is a big problem. People talking about why he hasn't solved those issues. Some saying that uh, perhaps he's asking too much of certain players in certain positions. He's changing things too much. It's uh, the first time uh, Guardiola's side has conceded three or more goals in back-to-back league games. It's the first time he's done that as a manager. I mean, what do you make of this situation, Dave? Because it's one clean sheet in 17 games now for Man City. I think that they, like Lauren said, Manchester City were playing a high line against Leicester City. Yeah, they did that last season. They won the Premier League because teams just kept on doing that to them last year and they've got so much pace. And if you let Mahrez, you let Vardy get in behind you or get into the space just in front of you when you're defending with two players, it's absolutely crazy. But again, it's something that Guardiola needs to do as a manager. He needs to evolve again. He needs to realise that sometimes he has to change his approach. He did that very well against Barcelona in the second game in the group stage of the Champions League and went on to beat them. But he needs to be a bit smarter because it's, it, it's too basic. 
you, see, you look at all the goals, it's the same thing. It's a long ball up top that either goes in behind or goes in the space in front of the players. Then they work it and the, you know they get a shooting opportunity in the penalty area. But it's this too high city. They're going like 3v3 against Soleimani, Mahrez and Vardy. That's why teams got absolutely trashed last season by Leicester City, was if they did that. And it was really weird to see the rest of the Premier League has adjusted. The rest of the Premier League has gone, right, let's sit a little bit deeper against Leicester because we know what they're going to do. Guardiola just goes out there, now we're, we're going to go away to Leicester, we're going to play the same way and we're going to beat them. It, it's poor from Guardiola. But that's what you I mean know, in terms as, as someone of... that is a fan of Guardiola and a fan of what he does, this wasn't anywhere near good enough and, and it was his fault. But that's what I mean. I appreciate as Lauren says that Leicester exploited Manchester City and, and, and Guardiola set the team up wrong for this game. But these problems go back further in terms of, you know what I'm saying, it's one clean sheet in 17 games. I mean, Guardiola, as you said, he, he came out after the game and said, I've tried to control games so we concede fewer goals and here I cannot do that in the Premier League and I have to analyse why. I mean, it, it does seem to speak to those those qualities of Guardiola that people often criticise him for in terms of being inflexible, in terms of being stubborn. I think that's one of the problems. And I think that it's not in terms of um, his overall approach and the overall way that he wants to control games. That's fine. That is a very, very good way to win football. That is arguably the best way to win football. I think it is just the being a little bit more adaptable, but also getting a little bit more out of some of these players. Otamende John Stones underperforming in a way. John Stones needs to just hit the gym. I don't understand why nobody sat him down wow. and said, you're a centre-half. Yes, you are very, very good on the ball. Yes, you play with your, your head up. You can still do that, but you need to be phys- more physical. You need to be stronger. You need to be um, you need to work on your positioning in some sense, especially on the counter-attack. John Stones seems to not be in the right position when teams have broken. When, uh, when City are transitioning from their attack to their defence, that transition is where John Stones isn't doing very well at the moment and he's consistently not putting himself in the, in the uh, you know in the, in the key place to, to win the ball back but City I think they lack they you know the start of the season they lacked good fullbacks and unfortunately if you're playing a possession-based system this day the fullbacks do get a lot of the ball and Kolarov, Zabaleta, Sagna, Clichy they aren't Pep Guardiola fullbacks and they are nowhere near good enough you know you go back to the Bayern Munich team David Alaba and uh, Philip Lahm then Barcelona you've got um, Eric Abadal, Dani Alves. No, these are these are the best in the world. I think that's a big thing that Pep didn't didn't address. But also, he has been playing three at the back with the two man midfield, and then four players behind one striker. He's been playing crazy systems. He also needs to slightly potentially go back to basics from um, some of the time. You know, it's he's exposing he's exposing players he shouldn't be exposing to say it like that. Mm. And yes, this City squad has a lot of investment in, but it's still not got that quality especially well, not, at the back not to excuse him but do you think he needs another transfer window or two to, to get the players in um, that can perform in the roles that he wants I, them to perform in I think, I think the, the, the strange thing about Manchester City is that they've been um, signing Guardiola players for the last two years let's say you know the Kevin De Bruyne one going to Manchester City is all a bit odd considering Bayern Munich were going to go in at Pepec was at Bayern knew that he was going to leave yeah a bit weird I don't, I don't think it's I think it's again Potentially, you've got to look into the academy, see if there's any right backs, left backs that you can pick up from there. Because you don't, you know, they can't instantly solve everything with money. Sometimes it has to come internally, and we know that the City Academy has done a lot of good work in recent years. At that level, they are they are very, very good. So maybe that it's more of an internal thing that they need to pull some players out of there and, and stop looking outward and look inward. Do you think, uh, Lawrence, that people want to see Pep Guardiola fail? I saw a lot of conversation about this over the weekend. Um, some people trying to defend him and say, you know, uh, the amount of people that want to see uh, Pep struggle in the Premier League is staggering. Others saying that he's finally being found out. Others saying he's a bald fraud. Um, what do you make of this? <laughs> what do you make of it? Which, which camp are you in, Adam? I'm in the 
you know, the bald fraud camp, I feel, is a bit over the top, you know, just because he's got no hair. Bit. It's not, yeah. it's not a big deal, you know. It's a, it's a strong look for him, in, in my eyes. Um, I think that... It's a really look. I do think that there is a, there is an appetite, though, for people to see him found out, weirdly. I'm not sure if it's just, you know, Manchester United fans or, or people who seem to rebel against... Um, Obviously, he's very successful in Barcelona, obviously very successful at Bayern Munich, but the common sort of myth seems to be that, you know, he only was successful at Barcelona because of Messi. He was only successful at Bayern Munich because he inherited uh, Japenka's incredible team. Um, people are saying, you know, the Premier League's very different. You know, he's got a very different team, Man City. This is the, the real test of him. And people seem to be hungry for him to, to struggle and to be able to point and laugh and say, hey, you know, we're going to tear you down now. Um, I just think he needs more time. I really do. I think when Jurgen Klopp came in and he struggled, we were all saying he needs another window, you know, give him time and everything's going to come good. You're going to be able to see his plan come to fruition when he gets the players he wants. To some extent, it's the same with Pep Guardiola. He should be afforded that chance to get in his players, but at the same time, he needs to find a solution. We're seeing Antonio Conte has managed to find a solution to uh, to getting Chelsea playing, so Pep Guardiola needs to needs to be able to do the same, really. I think it also goes with some people's agendas. Uh, some people, like you say, I think some people want to see him fail. I think saying he's failing does not mean he is failing. It just means, in your opinion, you think he's failing. Um, obviously, after a loss, it's more difficult. It's more difficult for him to make an argument for where he's been successful. Um, but at the same time, I think you know you, you make you make good points. I think another transfer window, another maybe two transfer windows, are going to change the face and the shape of the squad. Um, and I, genuinely, I also just think that there are times when he's probably going to be learning about uh, how to play in this league as well as anyone else is, as, as maybe pithy or stupid as that sounds, considering that he's a coach who should tactically be able to read a game much better than he yeah. seemed to be able to do with Man City. I think it's about perspective as well in that Man City were a lot of people's favourites at the start of the season. They went on that 10-game run. Obviously, now they are underperforming. But in light of the, the the start of the season, in light of Chelsea performing uh, so incredibly, and Arsenal as well, I think are unbeaten in the last ten or eleven in the league. For for City to go the last nine games, have only won three of them, and it's now back to back defeats. I think, of course, uh, sort of magnifies the the level of performance Manchester City are at. But um, uh, you know, Just like weird. A, yeah, uh, like not to excuse him at all, but I think you know, again over Christmas, if he doesn't rectify the problems especially in defence that Man City have got he's going to find himself uh, under even more pressure because they've got Arsenal at home I think in mid-December and I think uh, New Year's Eve they've got Liverpool away so there's big games in there that I think um, you know we'll be able to form even more of an opinion on on Man City um, in terms of I thought it's interesting. A lot of people, though, Lawrence, were questioning the standard of defending in the Premier League uh, after this game. Um, of course, you know, Leicester scored two within the first sort of 10 minutes or so. Sloppy defending from Manchester City. But overall, over that weekend, it, it, there does seem to be a, a tendency for teams to score at ease almost. I mean, every team, home team, scored three-plus goals on Saturday for the first time since 1993. It's the most goals scored uh, than on any other six-game day in the Premier League so far. Do you think the standard of defending in the Premier League is declining, that it is at an all-time low? Again, it's probably down to your perspective, um, whether you have some sort of belief or agenda pushing the idea that Premier League is not entertaining and too entertaining or, you know, it's about entertainment uh, or whether it's about uh, technical integrity within the league. Um, I also think that there are a lot of people who have found ways to exploit uh, those back lines. 
Um, and in developing new kind of centre-backs, and maybe the next generation of centre-backs, um, there's not maybe there's not enough overlap between the previous generation and this generation. Um, I, having said that, there are also some very tight games. Um, and, you know, I mean, you could say... At the same time, you could also say with, I mean, Dave said it pre-podcast, you know, Pogba could have had a hat-trick, um, but he didn't against Spurs. Um, and then the, there are two defenders in there that you would not expect to perform well. So, you know, and that's Rojo and Jones. So are they good defenders because they didn't concede a goal on the weekend? Because the end product's there. <laughs> uh, Dave, where do you where do you see on this one? Because... You know, obviously the Premier League famous for some of the best defenders in, in recent history. We're talking Rio Ferdinand, John Terry. It does seem that maybe those standards have slipped in, in recent years. Yeah, I think they have. You know, yeah, there's, there's so many more. Vidic, uh, Evera, just two, two other United players. You've got the Nevilles. You know, it's massive. It has massively slipped. You're not seeing the same level of quality in terms of defending, whether that's an academy issue in terms of how the game's moving on to... Players and defenders need to play with the ball. Maybe they've forgotten to coach well to defend. I don't know. We're not seeing the same level of quality. We're definitely not. I think that's a big thing. You know, in the 2000, what, around 2007, 2008, the Premier League was the best defensive league in the world. Teams would go away, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, would go away in the, the Champions League and they counter-attack and they break. And that's what, for me, English football should be. Um, that's down to a that system, though, isn't it? Um, I mean, I Mourinho, was, I Mourinho was one quality. of those bloody coaches <laughs> who, no, who did that. So he kicked off this defensive era in the Premier League, but I mean, well, it got to its peak when, when no. So that's what I mean. It got to its peak when you had the likes of Mourinho took some of what uh, Mourinho had been doing. Sorry, <laughs> that made no sense. Ferguson took <laughs> took to took some parts of Mourinho's game, applied that to Manchester United. You saw Rafa Benitez at Liverpool counterattack so well and were defensively so so strong in a very different system there, more zonal. Wenger seemed to be a bit more switched on there, but also had better defenders. And I think that is a big thing. I think it is to do with the quality of defender in the Premier League. And also, we're, we're seeing the likes of Otamende going for X amount of money, Mangala going for X amount of money. Um, and these players are not really up to scratch in the Premier League. So maybe it's also to do with the Premier League clubs buying overpriced defenders that don't actually have the quality and maybe need to do a little bit more research on them. Maybe it's quality of strikers. Maybe, um, yeah, maybe strikers have got better. Yeah, maybe strikers have got better. You're thinking that, you know, without mentioning too many names, you probably had you know, a lot of very, very top good for, you know, Fernando Torres, Cristiano Ronaldo in the Premier League, Carlos Tevez, Wayne Muni at United. You know, there was a lot of good players there. Um, I, I just think it's the quality of the defend, defending has, has not has dropped hugely. You know, going back to watch the 2011 Champions League final, United defensively were really good. The amount of blocks they're making, the right, the right decisions, the the, the centre backs, the, the, you know, what Patrice Evra did did to Lionel Messi in that final. Although Messi went on to completely, um, you know, scored the real crucial goal. Evra had a really good game in terms of uh, when they were one v one, and again, we're not seeing that level of defending. Again, the full the quality of fullbacks has gone down. If Leighton Baines has been considered as one of the best left backs in the Premier League for what the last six, seven, eight years when he, he has a big weakness in terms of his pace. We're, we've got to maybe reevaluate our system and, and, and our coaching and our scouting and, and everything. And I do think it's definitely to do with the quality of the players. I wonder if, as well as I think Dave's right, in the, the, the quality of the players has declined. I think that's why you see that there is a dearth of that, that top-class centre-back talent around. That's why you see John Stone signed for, say, 47.5 
million pounds this summer, but also uh, the coaching as well. Uh, maybe the art of defending is getting lost. I thought it was interesting this weekend after the game, Pep Guardiola sort of came out <laughs> and said he doesn't coach tackles. You know, what is tackles? I don't train that. Um, he's focused on the, on other aspects of the game. So maybe it's not a focus. What for, is tackles? What is tackles? <laughs> so maybe that's not a focus for managers like Guardiola. They're focusing on the attacking aspects um, and maybe the, the basics are, are getting lost. And I think that's something C have been accused of. Um, another team who are playing well, though, in the Premier League and, and challenging Chelsea uh, while City slip are Arsenal. Lawrence, they came from behind to beat Stoke 3-1 at the Emirates. Um, mm -hmm. a good performance for Arsenal uh, they're marching on and uh, continuing this theme of they seem to be a very different Arsenal in terms of the way they play in terms of winning games you'd expect them usually to, to stumble and I thought what was interesting as well was that uh, playing into that is the, the idea that Arsene Wenger in previous seasons sort of made he was accused of making substitutions for the sake of it almost you know he'd, he'd 70 minute bang on he'd, he'd make a sub but they wouldn't make much of an impact whereas this season Arsenal have scored a league high six goals from substitutes in the Premier League. Uh, Alex Awobi again scoring against Stoke. There does seem to be this idea that everything seems to be coming together for Arsenal. Yeah, I mean, th there's also the idea they haven't really been challenged in the way that maybe tactically you'd want to see them challenged. I think they've come up against a lot of sides who have um, given them the run of the game very often. Uh, there are going to be some Arsenal fans who are going to be able to cite games where they haven't ran the whole match and therefore, uh, somehow they're the victim. Um, it is it is vindication in some ways for Wenger. I also think it's very satisfying to see what Wenger's done in terms of the system up front with Sanchez uh, and slotting in two people around him and one guy just behind, whether that's Theo Walcott, whether that's uh, Iwobi uh, or even Oxlade-Chamberlain in there as well. Um, you know, everyone seems to know their best position. And I think that's also partly down to when they play the right midfield too. Um, and I think they found a, a, quite a good balance with Coquelin um, and Jacker, which gives them something to build from. I think when they play um, another combination, which could be maybe El Nene and Jacker, or maybe um, who else could they play back there at the moment if they're not injured? Um, Santi Cazola? I mean, you could play one. Santi Cazola, but he, he wasn't even on the subs. But this is, this he's injured. He's injured. In he it. is in, exactly. Yes. Um, yeah. Exactly. But um, what I, and so a lot of people would say that uh, you know Arsenal struggle when they don't have Santi Cazorla. He's so crucial to that team. Um, they don't. But they found it. They found it. I mean, yeah. that, but that was in that old Wenger system. That was in the, the previous yeah. iteration of this Wenger system. I think that the, under this one, the the focus is obviously Santi Cazorla. Uh, sorry, uh, Alexis Sanchez. Sanchez. Um, and so uh, it, it, they're, they're built around that now. Before they were built from something a little bit deeper i think now they go uh the ball goes higher a lot quicker uh up to alexis sanchez and then players sort of play off him so it's, it's a little bit different i think it makes them a lot more direct um and maybe more sort of of this time and then maybe wenger's not getting enough uh credit for that i think if they tactically um sort themselves out and look to counter-attack in the champions league they could be one of the dark horses of this season they, they start to become more resolute um and play without the ball that front two you know this season Mesut and Sanchez have been absolutely brilliant together you know look at Mesut's goal scoring record he scored nine goals already this season in 20 games last season he scored eight in 45 and the header that he scored was a crucial goal in the game it was at the crucial time and it was a it was a wonderful goal a wonderful run from attacking midfield and that's what Mesut wasn't doing last season was getting into those areas to score the goals or maybe he was getting into those areas but he wasn't being clinical in those areas so 
they they could be very good. And especially Sanchez, uh, I just love Sanchez as, as a number nine, and it's something that I've wanted to see at Arsenal for a while. And uh, people have slated, and people have no, he's definitely not a striker. But then we're seeing him in that position now, and he's looking really good. So exciting as well. A big game coming up then next Sunday. Uh, Manchester City welcoming Arsenal to the Etihad. Uh, pressure, pressure on City there, I think it's fair to say. But um, could be could be defining in many ways for both teams. Um, but we'll look forward to that one for next weekend. Moving on, Everton losing again, Dave. 3-2 at Watford. Uh, they've conceded 11 goals in their last four away games in the Premier League. And the pressure continues to mount on Ronald Koeman, who you are a big fan of. Oh, <laughs> Good old Roger Koeman. <laughs> Roger. Fraud, fraud number one after, no, fraud number two after Slav Bilic in terms of Premier League managers. Now, I think what we're, we're seeing wow. again is, is his spells at Benfica and at Valencia where he, with a big budget, he struggled. And again, the Southampton system, praise it. It's incredible. Um, that supported him a lot in terms of the signings and, and that type of thing. We're seeing with his Everton team, that the money that he spent in in the window was ridiculous. You know, Yannick Balassi, yeah, a decent player with 30 million is, is crazy. Again, it's going back to that like sort of centre back quality. Teams are getting ripped off. You don't spend 30 million on a 28 year old winger that has never really scored. You know, he's not scored over 15 Premier League goals in a season. It's mental. But I think what Everton need to do is maybe uh, go back to the basics in a bit. I think Ross Barkley needs to be back in that side. Yes, Cumin destroyed him and was was trying to build him back up, but. Against United, you know, last week when Barkley was on the bench and didn't see any minutes, it was crazy. Whenever Ross Barkley, whenever I've seen him and whenever you've got a motivated Barkley or a Barkley that you're getting on the ball, he's a very dangerous prospect to, to play against. And if, you know, if Everton want to push on, defensively they don't look good enough, so they need to score more goals in the opposition. Maybe throwing Ross Barkley up top in a 4-4-2 with Lukaku could be the option. Mm, I think, yeah, as you say, yeah, the, the defensive... Uh, frailties are the, are the problem there because they're, they're not having too much problem scoring but as I said 11 goals in the last four uh, away games to concede is uh, is pretty poor good performance from Watford though Lawrence um, I was impressed with Stefano Okaka um, that lovely finish the little I love a little back yeah, heel Oosh. I like that a lot um, unfortunately Troy Dini didn't get his, his 100th goal but still um, a good performance for Watford who are up to 7th now level on points with Manchester United um, so a good win Is Troy Dini the ultimate strike partner? Uh, in many ways yes in many ways yeah. I feel a bit um, sorry for Lukaku what because he scored 2 and still managed to yeah I feel he's too, I just think he's too good for Everton I think he, he I, d- I think he's, I think he's too good for the current iteration of Everton, I think he certainly had confidence in the team and was maybe right to have confidence in the team for quite a while. Um, I, who else could they get? Who knows? But I'm, I just don't think they have the quality of the individual quality of, you know, there seem to be a team who should be perhaps competing uh, close to, say, Spurs in terms of pushing for that top four, that top five. But no, nah, mate, not the same squad. No, but that's what I mean. I think Everton fans would like to see them push. For that sort of those sort of positions, but as you said, they don't have the same squad individually. They don't have the, the quality in the in those positions. Um, but yeah, a, a disappointing defeat for them. They are down to ninth in the table. Uh, let's move on to our BFF, Lawrence, friend of the show, Bob Bradley. A free yes, nil win over Sunderland. He described the game going into it as a cup final, um, a massive win for them. They're up to 18th now, leaving Sunderland bottom. Uh, I think ultimately it, it, it's, a, it's a battle between two sides who are 
relatively poor in that sense. Um, and had Swansea not won this, it would have been um, a big issue for them in the sense that they, you know, they, they lost against the big sides and now they're losing against um, the smaller teams as well or the, t- the sides they're competing directly against. Bob Bradley's been brought in to win these kind of games and tactically I think he he's the kind of astute manager that can work out um, how to get his side over the line. I think that that's happened against the teams when they've got the wins. Essentially they played big sides and then won against the other teams they were supposed to. Um, I'm really enjoying watching certain p- players under him. Sigurdsson um, or Sigurdsson as he calls him um, and then Fernando Llorente as well. Uh, just And those two players are obviously key because they scored uh, penalty and then two of the goals as well. It's it's great to watch. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? I think you know uh, they were awful against Spurs last weekend, but these are the games that that Swansea are, are going to have to win if they are going to escape relegation. Uh, he made five changes, I think, from that team who were thrashed last weekend, and uh, yeah, fully justified. And as you say, Fernando Llorente is a player I've always been a fan of, starting to prove himself uh, with the goals. So hopefully. You know, we're a little bit biased now, I think, because you know he came well, on the he podcast, the interview, gave a great yeah. interview. But well, hopefully, well, at the same time, I, 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 again, we said it. I think we said it last week on the podcast. He's played really difficult sides mm. in a in a series of games. He won the game that maybe you'd argue they were supposed to. I know it was five four, but he's arguably won the game they were supposed to, and then won the other game they were supposed to three nil. Very confident tactically. So let's see. Although, mm. you know, both both the teams he came up against were probably two of the poorer tactical sides in the league. Um, and it's easy to set up against those guys. So yeah. Sunderland were in a really good run at form. What, they, they'd won was three of the last four games? Well, it um, completely flipped HB, it. I mean, Defoe yeah. looked good. So, yeah, I think yeah, you've got yeah. to give credit to Bob, Bob Bradley. Bob Bradley. Bradley. Bob Bradley. If you're listening, I apologise, buddy. <laughs> yeah, tweet Dave because he wants to do a little interview. Um, they are off yeah, the bottom. Yeah, Bob, if you want to chat about football, mate, I'm your man. <laughs> they, uh, they're off the bottom of the table now, Swansea. They were briefly up to uh, up 17th before West Ham's draw Liverpool. Uh, so a big result for them. And perhaps more importantly, they've got some uh, some winnable games coming up. Potentially uh, West Brom and Middlesbrough. So I think you know those are the sort of games they should be looking to potentially get uh, at least a point from uh, to sort of help them uh, in their in their struggle to to survive. Uh, moving on to Burnley. Uh, another three goals at home uh, on Saturday. They beat Bournemouth 3-2. The home form again coming into play. Dave, uh, they've won. Only Chelsea have won more Premier League games. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He's at home and Burnley, uh, and they've scored as many home Premier League goals this season as they managed in the whole of their last Premier League campaign. Yeah, I think credit credit where credit's due, Sean Dyche has, has, has done a good job. Uh, you know, You've always got to question managers that sort of yo-yo clubs. Um, but when they get to, you know, the stuff we're seeing this season from Burnley is an improvement on what we saw last time. So credit to them. And, you know, in terms of how they're scoring goals, only Liverpool have scored more goals outside from outside the area than Burnley. So they are a threat from range. Um, but they do break well. And Stefan Defoe, a player that, I, that a lot of people were confused when he was signed, including myself, being like, why have you bought Stefan Defoe? You know, he's been floating around 
the leagues for a number of years now, but he's been pretty crucial for them this season, four assists and a goal. So from from central midfield or from you know more aggressive midfield berth, um, he's been very, very good. And they, they have changed their system up. They've gone five in midfield in some games. Last season, it was more of a four, or last time they were in the Premier League, sorry, it was more of a 4-4-2 four, four, every week. But they are, you know, they are, they are playing a 4-5-1 from time. Jeff Hendrick is a very good sign as well from Derby, a player that works very hard. But they do sort of have, they've got something else. They've got a little bit more in terms of a defensive um, ability to not concede as many goals as they did last time. Last last time they came to Premier League very, very open. But this time, they're doing a lot better. Michael Keane as well has been fantastic. They have it. They are up to 13th, um, starting to break away from the relegation zone. That goal as well, that first goal um, from Jeff Hendrick was pretty sensational, I think so to say. Uh, match of the day contender. Goal of the season contender, I should say. Yeah, match of the day contender, mate. That's yeah. a match of the day. This match of the day was the best match of the day. Is therefore a contender for, uh, for best match of the day. Um, potentially the game of the weekend, though. Um, I really enjoyed uh, watching some of the highlights from this one. Hull free, Crystal Palace free, Lawrence. It made me a little bit wistful uh the fact that Wilfried Zahar is now playing so well and the Spurs maybe Spurs should have spent 30 million on Wilfried Zahar in the summer uh, as opposed to Musa Soko he scored or assisted seven goals in his last seven games this is the point I've got to where I, I want Spurs to sign Wilfried Zahar Dave uh, uh, mate mate you bottled it but what I'd say with Sissoko what was really funny is when he came up he like instantly was a threat and instantly was like oh my god this this lad's got pace it was got shocking power. He's getting to the right areas. And then when he got like, he beat Darmian like four or five times. And you think, uh-oh. Then he gets signed the final third and you're like, no, it's fine, man. He could do whatever he wants. He that, could be there for two hours and he wouldn't do anything. That was what he was exactly what he was brought for, that power off the bench. Um, yeah, but that, no that, end product, that, though. That's all he has. But that's what I'm saying. There's no end product. Anything. He can't think. Whereas, Lawrence, someone like Wilfried Zahar, he's got some end product. <laughs> also can't think. He's, he's just Also fine. someone who's, who's grossly inconsistent. But... Like I'm saying, he's scored seven goals in his last seven games. He's starting to become quite a crucial player, a player who does have that end product. Eh? Am I just being way over? No, I'm going yeah. too far. No, I think, I think you're right. There, there is. He there scored is a brilliant goal. He made yeah. a brilliant assist on the weekend. Why don't you just sign him then, Adam? Why don't you marry him? Well, he's, he's busy with David Moyes' daughter. So no, I better cut that out. Um, Lawrence, hit me with some, some criticism of Wilfried Zaha then, and specifically Palace. No, no criticism, Adam. No, not criticism. Great guy. Uh, it, it was, it was, he's a great player. I don't have any problem with him. Uh, personally, I mean, you know, don't do not do that with a manager's daughter, though. Yeah. Um, I said about the, that. The, <laughs> but no, but it, on, David in terms of that game, though, it, it was... Adam, brilliant. you know what the final score was, though, don't you? Yeah, for real. Yeah, yeah, but that's not Wilfried Zahar's fault. That's uh, <laughs> well, I mean, he's one of the eleven. Mate. Um, I mean, at the same time, oh, though, at the same time though, Pardew said this will be one of the games that defines our season. I'm hoping <laughs> before the game. Uh, and I and I thought, you know what I thought when I read that? I thought, I hope you lose, um, because it's just so arrogant to set games up. Like he, what he thought was, I'll show you all, and he set himself up for a massive fall and then fell. Mediocre but why, and Drew. But Bob Bradley said before the Sunderland game, it was that season defining. He said it was like a cup final. What? No, no, no. Like the way that the, the I can't I can't remember the exact tone of the quotes from Pardew, but they basically um, they basically make out as if uh, Hull City are 
supposed to be an easy to beat side right um and basically they sound quite arrogant from Pardew. let me play um, let me play devil's advocate for a, for a moment then uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to advocate Pardew, then sure. I, d- I don't necessarily want to advocate Pardew, but... Uh, You're playing devil's advocate, mate. No, well, what I'm trying to say is that Palace, they're scoring goals. They're scoring a lot of goals. That's great, right? Yeah. Like I say, Wilfried Zahr, great player. Bang on no for No end product. One point. <laughs> One point. on for... But they scored three goals against Hull. They scored three against Southampton before that. Uh, they scored... They scored four against Swansea before that and lost. But in terms of... <laughs> Obviously, they're scoring a lot of goals. Obviously, the problems are in defence, as with a lot of these teams are talking about. They lost three two to Burnley, four two to Liverpool, but what I'm three to say is, one to Leicester, no, it's Leicester one to nil to West Ham. What do you mean signing James Tompkins for ten million was a bad bit of business again? No, no. But if he could just, I'm not saying I have any faith in Alan Pardew that he could, or Alan Pardew that he could sort out that defence. Pardew, but you can see the the issue there, right? If they could just keep a clean sheet apart from the one they did against Southampton, then, you know, they'd be fine. They'd be sailing. I think that's a big thing, though, isn't it? It's, it they are scoring goals at the moment, like you did mention, For but defensively, they, are, they look so bad, so disorganised in a way. And I think it's just a matter of... We all, th- we all know it's probably just a matter of time between, until Pardew gets the chop, because, unfortunately, especially he's got a, he's got a goal-scoring Christian Benteke that you play the right system to him, you play the right balls to him, he's going to score goals. And they, Benteke they looked good, that, yeah. But they just, they just—they're not defending very well, and I think that's the problem. Um, uh, you can't defend. I think that's—you know—that is why teams get relegated in the Premier League. You can see too many goals, and kind of looks like that for Palace at the moment. Unfortunately, think that so was, was as that... soon as Big Sam comes back, we'll all be happy. Was that Pardew's right? chance to to keep his job then, Lawrence, or do you think he's got a little while longer? They've got Manchester United and Chelsea uh, up next in consecutive Premier League fixtures at home. Do you think that could be when the axe falls or do you think he's going to get until uh, the game against Watford just before Christmas? That could be the chance maybe for him to, to get a stay of execution. I think he's got the stay of execution because mm. they're short on other options. It's that simple. If there was a better option out there in the market, he'd be gone. I don't, I don't like Alan Bargy. I'll put it out there. But, All right, mate. You know, well, join the club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I can see the the... I can see the positives in this scoring a lot of goals. Yes, the game management. Stop uh, focusing on all the goals. But yeah, and the yes, the game management. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all right. They're, they're doomed. I don't, don't win games from just scoring goals. But all the goals. This is, We're talking this about is Liverpool. We talked about Liverpool. We were like, oh yeah, the defence is poor. It doesn't matter. They're going to outscore teams. I know Palace aren't outscoring teams. But there can be, you know, everyone struggles with their... It seems no one said no, 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 no. People say they're currently outscoring other sides, and they're and they've got uh, John scoring goals for uh, Lovren and uh, Clavan, and uh, there's one other in there, but I can't remember who. Carrius, Mamadou Sako, um, and and though at least those guys have got an inkling of performing better. The point is, he's a streaky manager, and we all know it. Uh, and he he went on his he started on his little streak. They thought that was going to continue because they got arrogant and looked at the uh, fixtures and thought, oh, we'll win that, we'll win that. Came away with, well, they, uh, what, They lost six points. in a row. They lost six in a row. Now, you know, one draw and one win in the last two games. So, whew, maybe that game against Man United at home. And all them goals. Ooh, them goals. He's, it's just, it will be classic Pardew to, like, win against United. They're def- yeah. They'll, no, I think they're going to lose, like, 5-4 or 4-3 or something like that. I think it's, uh, it's going to Great. Mind you, when was the last time Manchester United scored more than one goal in a Premier League game? Buddy, you better back off, all right? What I'm saying we'll is, just you're, your gonna, you're gonna get out. Right, you've heard it here first. Palace are gonna win next weekend. I'm telling you now, Palace are gonna win. 
Is that Stephen Alston in the background? <laughs> that is Stephen Alston. I am in Stephen Alston's car. Tell him to cool his. To tell him to cool his jets. Old Trafford. Um, tell him to stop touching you. All right, Dave. <laughs> Dave, do we have to? The, the lad says stop. Stop touching me. It's getting a bit weird. Is that all right? Just doesn't work. Oh, fuck. Mm, <laughs> Dave, do we have to love you and leave you now? You're going to do a full time. Uh, uh, probably got about five minutes. Five minutes. Have you got any any killer questions? What a, uh, what a rubbish car journey. House must be having. Just sitting next to Dave, just <laughs> on on Skype. Yeah, it's just hanging out. Uh, ask uh, why don't you put us onto House for a second, or just hold the phone in front of him. Is can he do that? Yeah. Stephen Alston, you're live on the front three. Have you got anything to say to the listeners? Yeah, I'm um, petitioning to try and get on this megalith of a podcast. It doesn't seem to be happening. What is going on? Mate, you're, you're, you're on, on it right it. now. Now you're on it. <laughs> I, will, I feel like I'm unprepared because I'm driving, and obviously I'm obeying the rules of the road, well, so I'm not going to be fully concentrating well, on delivering concentra- top-notch content like concentra- is expected on Podcast. Concentrate on the driving house. We wouldn't want anything, uh, anything to happen. But just before, well, not to me, Dave's. I mean, Dave. Yeah, Dave, it's fine. You know, uh, you don't want anything to happen to me. We're just, we're just finishing up our, our Premier League review. But I'd love to hear from you, just your perspective and your thoughts on the win over Spurs. I thought. Well, I heard a lot of people saying that Tottenham dominated the game. They dominated possession. They didn't dominate territory. They held possession in the defence and the midfield, and they didn't really have much penetration. And I've got to say that was down to Michael Carrick and Ander Herrera and Paul Pogba's defensive abilities in midfield. I thought we completely stopped everything coming through to that back line, which I do think shaky for United at the moment. We had far, many, far more chances from inside the box. You only had one chance from inside the box. I think we had about half a dozen. And I think that's the kill difference, really, that we managed to get the ball into the forward players a little bit more than Tottenham did. And taking another away from Tottenham, you're still in the second defeat in the Premier League this season. You're a good side, and I think that's a massive victory for Manchester United. I really do. I think people are playing it down because Tottenham didn't look like they put up much of a fight, but I think that was because United stopped them playing rather than they didn't turn up. I think in terms of confidence as well, it's a big win. I think that's the first game you won in, in, in four attempts now. Obviously, those three disappointing draws in a row. Do you think, I said the same thing to Dave, and he obviously said yes, but do you think Manchester United are on the verge of finding their momentum of becoming a very good team? Well, Chelsea came from nowhere, didn't they, to be um, now like favourites for winning this league after putting a run of five or six wins together. And now I think they're on nine straight wins. Well, Manchester United have got a, a reasonable December where you could expect them to go and win every single one of those games, this being the hardest game yesterday. So I think if we can put a win run together of five or six wins, we're going to find ourselves right in the mixer because I've had a look at the fixtures that everybody's got to play and everyone has got a little bit of a dodgy fixture, if not this month, certainly next month. I think Liverpool's mostly come in January. I think Chelsea's come in January. But everyone's still got to play each other in and around there. There's far too many good managers outside of that top six, let alone inside the top six that points are going to get took from places that you don't expect it. I mean, look at the points that Liverpool have dropped in the last couple of weeks. These injuries are going to be picked up. There's all sorts of things that are about to happen. I think you're going to see the lead in the league t- change hands at least two or three more times before the end of the season. And it's literally who can just remain the most consistent at the moment. And uh, it's going to be a hell of a season, I think, coming up. Wow, there you have it. Stephen Housen on the front three. Well prepared, mm. uh, concentrating. I like it. Housen, thank you very much. Laters. <laughs> uh, Dave, go on. We'll let you get off to your. Uh, Dave, we don't need you anymore. We're finishing up essentially, so we'll uh, <laughs> we'll let you get on with your full time devils. What are you chatting about on full time devils? Man United, Tottenham. Remember the the one nil win in the Premier League, Adam? Yes, we've been banging on about it for the last hour. Um, enjoy. Dave, yourself. Can you fit the phrase "all those goals" into the video for us, please? Yeah. All those goals. Yeah. We'll all do, those mate. goals and goals Good. for fun potentially. Oh, and goals, goals for, fun, for fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's easy. That one's easy. All those goals is an easy one. Goals for fans are also easy. You be, oh, but would you be yeah, saying, oh, Man United haven't been scoring all those goals? We haven't yeah. been scoring goals for fans. <laughs> haven't been scoring you all those one. goals. House wants a phrase. Oh, okay. Uh, um, <laughs> this is also our house and got his wife. Uh, um, <laughs> um, can you do, could you do kill, kill, kill them all? Yep, no problem. <laughs> No, do a do a Boo-Earns thing because they were booing yeah. the Fellaini. Hey, right, <laughs> Enjoy yourself, Dave. Enjoy yeah, yourself. I'll uh, I'll catch you guys in a bit. And thanks for listening, all you wonderful listeners. Bye bye. Wow, what a man! <laughs> what an ego! <laughs> <laughs> Dave, all right you there. wonderful and people, thanks for tuning in to Big Old Dave. Hassan's great, isn't he? There was a, there was a point though where he did say that he just out of the blue just went, "That's the kill difference." <laughs> Anyway, guys, that is our Premier League review. Time for part two and time to get the lowdown on the Liga with journalist Ewan McTeer. So joining me now is Ewan McTeer, a journalist for Marker in English. Ewan, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. We are here to talk about La Liga and give the listeners an update on all the weekends happening. Of course, there's only one place to start, and that is with Real Madrid, a last-minute win thanks to a last-minute header from Sergio Ramos. Not the first time we've said that. Uh, a 3-2 win in the end against Deportivo, and as their manager said, the whistle doesn't blow until Madrid scores. Ewan. Yeah, exactly. It's the second week in a row that Ramos has come up to, to save Real Madrid, and those goals are worth really five points because... Barcelona had one, they would take all three points last week, Real Madrid leave with none, and then this week uh, he turns that draw into, into a win. So they've got their six-point lead at the top of the table over Barcelona, and those two Ramos headers uh, made sure that they've still got six points and not just one. So very important win, and yeah, like you say, it's not over until Ramos scores. What did you make of uh, Zidane's approach going into this game? Because there was some criticism, it seemed, for, for resting certain players ahead of, uh, of the Club World Cup. Yeah, it was an odd one that he rested um, all of them. So Gareth Bale was already out injured. He's out until early 2017. And then he rested Ronaldo, Benzema and Modric, probably his next three best players. Um, so it's slightly odd that he rested all of them at once. Um, I know they had uh, the Barcelona and Dortmund games last week, so there maybe wasn't an opportunity to rest them before the Club World Cup. But you'd think he would want to have at least maybe Modric in there. He's the one that has made them tick in the last few weeks. Um or maybe, you know, rest Ronaldo, but keep Benzema on there. He scored in midweek. And, um, yeah, you, you wonder how... Well, it just shows you how seriously they're taking the Club World Cup. But it was a risky one, and they almost backed out. Nonetheless, he did get the win. And, of course, it's now 35 matches unbeaten. Um, the best run in the club's history, I believe, under Zidane, of course. Um, do you think this achievement's getting the credit it deserves uh, for the Frenchman? Yeah, probably probably not. I mean, the, they've had a lot of late goals. Um, but, as you say... Like like Zidane said after the match, the, the whistle doesn't blow until the uh, you know ninety minutes are up or stoppage time as well, which is when they scored a lot of them. So in the last in that thirty five match run where they've matched the nineteen eighty eight eighty nine side, they scored thirteen goals in the last five minutes. Um, so that's like if you do the maths, which I did probably correctly, maybe not, and um, that works out at fourteen percent of their goals in that run have come in the last five minutes, which is just six percent of the match. Um, so I think that's made people think that they're a little bit jammy with some of those wins, but you know they they obviously work on you know set pieces and plan Bs and Cs and Ds, and you know they found a way to get these wins or you know at the very least a, a draw. So um, yeah, I mean you score last minute goals, it, it looks a lot better if you've been able to win the game comfortably, but every goal counts, and yeah, they deserve credit because yeah they all count. 
Some seem to still have their reservations about Zidane, though, don't they? I've seen a number of people dismiss this run as luck, which I think it's fair to say is unfair. But in terms of Real Madrid's aims for this season, where do their priorities lie? Obviously, now they're six points clear of Barcelona. They're going well in the Champions League. And, of course, they have got the Club World Cup coming up. Um, I think their main goal this season is to win the league. Um, they, they haven't. They've only won the one league in I think it's the last eight years now. So their goal is to win a league, um, and they've been quite explicit in saying that. But when a Champions League game comes around, they're going to take it very seriously. Um, yeah, I think the interesting thing with Zidane is he's he's perceived as this sort of eagle whisperer who's come in and he's been able to sort of speak to the players and relate to them in a way that Rafa Benitez never could. There was a story of Benitez trying to teach Ronaldo how to take a free kick and. You can just imagine him just laughing at Benitez, trying to do that, even though Benitez has won so much. He's never had that reputation as being a top-class player, whereas Zidane has obviously done that, and he's done it at the Bernabeu. So um, if there's anyone uh, qualified to come in and tell these Ballon d'Or candidates how to play um, and how they should be acting, it's Zidane. So a lot of people think that that's been the main uh, secret of his success, and it's probably had a part, but... They sort of dismiss uh, the tactical elements he's been able to, to employ. And he's, he's not just been playing the same formation every week. He's been able to adjust it a little bit. He took Isco off um, in this game because it wasn't quite working, shifted a bit more to a 4-4-2. Um, you know, he's, he's been trying things uh, with his tactics as well, and that sometimes gets uh, overlooked, I think, just because um, he's a big name and they think he's been able to manage a dressing room and that's, and he's just let the players do their thing. He has, but he's also uh, done his part as well. They are still six points ahead of their great rivals, as I mentioned earlier. Barcelona getting their first win in four attempts after three consecutive draws. A 3 0 win over Osasuna and another goal for the all time Lionel Messi highlight reel, Ewan. Yeah, I think that was his 22nd of the season, so um, in December, which is just, which is just crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, it was about as routine a win as, as most people expected. Osasuna. Uh, fighting for uh, against relegation at the bottom of the table. Um, yeah, it was away from home, and that stadium has been quite tricky for Barcelona in the past, but um, I think everybody expected them to win, and they didn't have Neymar, he was suspended, but even still. Um, and it took a little bit of knocking on the door. They they had so many chances in the first half, and missed a few sitters, um, but once Suarez got the opener, it was, it was pretty plain sailing from that point onwards, and then Messi added a, a couple of late ones. Rounding out the top three are Sevilla. They closed the gap on Barcelona uh, to one point in the league with a 3-0 victory over Celta Vigo. How are they shaping up this season, Ewan? Yeah, they look really impressive. And um, yeah, they, they started well and everyone thought, OK, that's great. They've got a chance of finishing in the top four. But like you say, they're just one point behind. Uh, Barcelona still are in the top three. Um, so they've got a, a good chance of finishing in the top four or even better. Um, yeah, they, they had a tricky game away at Celta Vigo. Uh, last week, Celta Vigo been the kind of Jekyll and Hyde team of La Liga. They're very wildly unpredictable, and Sevilla managed to win three 0 this weekend. But it was again, it wasn't easy like the Barcelona game. It was nil nil at halftime, um, and then San Paoli brought on Vicente Ibora at halftime. He comes on, scores a second half substitute, um, which I think just uh, shows what Sevilla have been all about this season. A bit like Zidane, uh, San Paoli's been changing the system uh, almost for every single match. I mean, in the Champions League, they basically qualified by getting nil-nil draws uh, against Juventus and Lyon. Um, but in the league, they've been you know, throwing players forward, sometimes playing a three-man defence, sometimes four, sometimes you could call it more like a five-man defence. He's um, yeah, he's been willing to change things up if he doesn't like how they're going, and uh, more often than not, he's, he's got it right. 
Sevilla in third, then Real Sociedad in fourth. Five points behind Sevilla are Atletico Madrid in fifth. They're obviously away to Villa Real tonight. I mean, you and we were talking a few weeks ago with journalist Robbie Dunn about how Atleti might well be the best team in Europe with Diego Simeone bringing a more expansive side to their usual solidity. But that transition has started to expose a few weaknesses in recent weeks. I mean, their form has been erratic, to say the least. Is tonight a chance for them to get back on track? It is a chance. Um, if, they, if they win that, they would jump up into fourth spot. But it's it's a tricky one because Villarreal have, have taken away the honour of being the best defence in Spain from themselves. Uh, Villarreal have only conceded 10 goals this season, which is one fewer than Atletico Madrid, who have held that honour for basically since Simeone arrived. Um, so it's going to be a tricky one. Um, if they can, uh, they should be able to keep Villarreal but, out, but it just depends if they can break them down. And last week against Espanyol, they weren't able to. They dominated the game, but they just couldn't. Uh, come up with the, the quality in, uh, in attack and yeah they've uh, been relying on Griezmann I think for the past couple of seasons and he's been out of form a little bit recently so um, you are looking to the, the players they've brought in Kevin Gamero and then Carrasco who's come up um, and stepped up a lot in recent uh, weeks you're looking for one of those three to turn it on each game um, but sometimes all three of them misfire and they tend to misfire uh, the same week which I think has been their problem whereas you look at Barcelona and Real Madrid their front freeze, there's always somebody that is having a good game each week um, and wins a game for them. Well, Ewan, thank you so much for giving us the lowdown on La Liga. Much appreciated. If the listeners want to find more of your work, where can they follow you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, just at E. McDeer on Twitter. Right, so I'm now here with the main man, Chris Hennage. Chris, welcome back to the UK. It's lovely to be back on home soil. Yeah, you have a good time over in the, over in the States? I did, yeah. It's it's a totally different culture in terms of the sport. So there's there's fun in terms of enjoying those those differences and, and getting to meet new people and things like that. I had a few fun excursions. So yeah, all all, all told, really good fun. And hopefully some good front three stuff will uh, generate off the back of it. Oh, exciting. Well, before we get on to MLS Cup chat, let's talk about the UEFA Champions League draw. The round of 16 fixtures were made this morning. Some interesting ties in there. And of course, Arsenal drawing Bayern Munich. Um, of course, not the first time these two sides have met. They met uh, in 2013 and 14. Uh, the Gunners crashing out on both occasions at the same stage in the competition. Both different sides now, Chris. I mean, Arsenal fans seemed a little bit frustrated with this tie. They seemed a little bit apprehensive. What are your thoughts about this one? I think there was someone who, who put it out to do this along uh, with, I think, Barca PSG is the most common tie of the last half decade. I think of that series, if you will, this is Arsenal's best opportunity to beat Bayern because I don't think that's so much a slant on Carlo Ancelotti for me as much as I think Bayern are transitioning right now from a manager who was very set in one way into someone who was set in a slightly different way. So there's going to be little bumps along that path. And we can see they haven't been as imperious or as... um, as, as sort of fluid as, as previous seasons. And it's difficult when a team like Bayern sets such high standards that, you know, even the smallest drop can can seem like a real chasm of uh, failure. So I think, yeah, that's that for me is the takeaway from an Arsenal perspective is it really is a great chance for them to um, potentially get a big win and, and just in general, I think, really improve their standing in the competition for their supporters. 
Hmm, I think uh, Arsenal have gone... They've been knocked out of this stage in the past six successive seasons, I think. So history, recent history at least, isn't necessarily on their side. But I think you're right in that although Bayern Munich will improve before March, there's there's certain weaknesses you can see there um, with Carlo and Scholli's side. And this is a different Arsenal. You know, We were talking about this this week in, uh, in the Premier League review. This is uh, a side who seem to be functioning at a higher level than they have in recent seasons. So I think Arsenal fans can be hopeful on this one. It's going to be a tough game, of course. Um... The next fixture, interesting tie, is of course Paris versus Barcelona. As you said, there another one that we've we've seen in recent uh, recent competitions. In terms of this game, I mean Unai Emery hasn't exactly been set in the world light uh, at PSG. Obviously, the draw with Nice at the weekend was uh, was a disappointing result for them in some respects. Barcelona uh, struggling in their own right. Of course, got back to winning ways on the weekend after three draws in a row in the Liga. Um, I'm going to put my money behind Barcelona for this one, though. Um, what do you make okay. of this one, Chris? I, th- I think I'm going to agree with you, yeah. and that's that's based on a few key things, which is a lot of them you alluded to in the question there, which is they're struggling under Emery. Um, I caught the the Nice game last night. I wasn't massively impressed with PSG. Um, no. Managed to to pick up a copy of Lequipe on the way back um, through Paris today, and and again they were equally kind of as as damning in terms of criticism. There's just something about this PSG side, and and. I, I talked about this on the, the last show I did um, about their Champions... I think it was their Champions League game in which Emery makes a substitution against Ludwig Goretz towards the last 10 minutes, and it's for a left-back. It's it's very bizarre to me in general. I think, <clears throat> it, as well, granted, he scored a brace against Nice, so I'm, I'm not looking to completely throw him under the bus. There is an issue I have with relying on Edison Cavani as that lead guy. I think you look at his time there when Zlatan was there... Anytime Cavani was given that opportunity to be that main man, to be that leader for them, he just ended up fluffing it. And I don't debate that he scores goals. He proved that against Nice just the other night. It's the he misses. Um, Andrew yes. Gibney talks about that a lot. It's it's not the fact that he scores those two goals. It's the fact that really, if you look at the whole context of the game, he possibly should have had a hat-trick and that would have won them the game. And if you're being really critical of him, you would say that's the kind of thing that maybe Slatan did during his time there he's, he got that hat-trick he got them that win mm. it's the the third time they're meeting in the knockout stage of the of the Champions League in the past five seasons Barcelona won on the previous two occasions so I'm expecting them to go through once again here elsewhere Manchester City drew Monaco um, some City fans happy with that result, but Monaco is somewhat underrated. I think you know they were impressive. You know I saw them play uh, obviously against Spurs twice in the group stages. Um, a good team, and they they seem to be back on form now. Obviously Falcao as well seems to be finding his his best form. So it could be a it could be a dangerous game for Man City. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a potential slip up. I think we can we can agree on that. The the Falcao thing, Monaco in general, I think are built a bit better towards him and what he needs as a forward. Um, I think the previous teams he's been on, Chelsea, Man United, it was a little bit like, just put him in there and see what happens. And the pace of things, the physicality of things, the fact is his knee has clearly deteriorated a bit. That has, has all led into this struggle that he's had. Elsewhere, you talked about some of the players you saw. Them after that. You were quite impressed with Bernardo Silva, if I remember right? Yes, yes. Um guys like that they're all very good like I say that's the thing uh, Jardim has, has put together a fairly good team that really I wouldn't say it has many stars at this point but it has players that I could see becoming stars and so 
those are the kind of teams you need to watch. It, in that regard, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Porto years ago, where you would watch them and you would say, oh, you know, Lissandra Lopez, Lucha Gonzalez, Charisma, these guys, they're really good. They're, why hasn't someone picked them up and, and taken them to a, a bigger stage? Maybe maybe after a good performance against City, a few of those guys will, will get those looks. Hmm. Um, next up, an interesting one, Real Madrid versus Napoli. Again, you'd expect Real Madrid to go through, but Napoli shouldn't be underestimated. They're, uh, they're fourth at the moment in Serie A, playing some good football. And, you know, that could be a difficult ground to go to as well in terms of the, the first leg being at Napoli for, for Madrid, Chris. Definitely. I, I think to go to, to Naples and, and potentially try and win, that's a very big ask. I think when you get Napoli back to Madrid, that for me is a much easier proposition because I think it could be a very intimidating atmosphere. And yet, as I say that, I can also think of Dortmund, who seem to handle it quite well. Um, it's it's all very much ifs and buts at this point, a lot of intangibles. I would expect Real Madrid to go through, personally. I'd be a little bit surprised if they didn't. Um, I'm sure they weren't delighted with this title because it could, it could throw up a few little roadblocks for them or a few little obstacles <laughs> they have to try and get over. Well, speaking of Dortmund, they have drawn Benfica. Um Again, another a, a good opponent. Everyone at this stage, of course, have got their own qualities, but you'd again favour potentially Dortmund to go through in this one? Yes, I would. I think <clears throat> in relation to to this tie um, specifically, both teams, I think, will be a little bit pleased they got the other one, if that makes sense. I, I think that's a, it's, it's a fairly even time, and Benfica are doing very well domestically. They just beat Sporting, I think, at the weekend. Um, and... Watching them sporadically in the group stages, I was impressed with some of the things I saw. Um, we talked about Guedes being this uh, young talent that, again, could come through in the same way that Sanchez has and Bernardo Silva and these players. Um, granted, Silva didn't really play for the first team, but it's the same production line. Um, for Dortmund, I kind of tipped them as my, if I could pick a winner in the, the last pod. Games like this will help them get closer to that because it, it is a very winnable tie on their end. And I think in terms of the way the two teams match up, it, it does help Dortmund in that regard. Leverkusen, uh, another one of Spurs' opponents who went through from their group. They face Atletico Madrid. Both teams somewhat uh, have their own struggles in terms of their domestic form. But in the Champions League, I mean, Leverkusen are undefeated so far. And Atletico Madrid obviously uh, performed well in their group. Who's your money on this one? I'm going to say, again, because it takes place in February, March, I'm going to say Atletico because I think... Uh, Simeone probably would have uh, eradicated some of the, the errors and the weaknesses that we're seeing currently in his side. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think, look, David will be able to talk to this, talk about this, excuse me, in more depth. And <clears throat> for me, it's it's two very intense teams coming together here. You got Roger Schmidt, who you know we all Guardiola saying he he'd never faced a more intense team than his Salzburg side. You've then got uh, Simeone, who again likes to to operate with that same kind of pressure on the opponent so it, it could be a very it could be a very fast and easily swung tie in that regard it, it, it could be about who responds better to those opening exchanges and it could be a game in that regard that's won in the first 15-20 minutes of, of either leg um, I think for for me personally I do just side with Atletico slightly but I do also really enjoy Leverkusen and there's part of me that would quite like them to go through Porto over Juventus up next. Uh, an intriguing one. Juventus surely the strong favourites though. Uh, Porto weren't exactly 
convincing, I think it's fair to say, in their group alongside Leicester. They went through the runners-up. However, they do have a very strong defence uh, domestically. Ikexi has only let in five goals all season. Um, Juventus themselves, though, have a very strong defence as well as a very strong attack, a very well-balanced side. So you'd expect them to go through in this one, Chris. Porto, I mean, yeah, I mean, Porto haven't conceded and I think about 700 minutes now um, domestically. Juventus are a much different proposition. I watched their game against Torino the weekend. I thought they were brilliant. Um, Higuain, for all the, the talk of what he cost and how much of an investment that was, it's an investment in quality. I don't know if it's the quality that wins in the Champions League or decides things in key moments. It is a quality, I think, that could put Porto away comfortably, though. Um I believe the first leg is in Portugal, which helps Porto slightly, because if they can keep that maybe nil-nil, keep it very tight, then they can go back to, to Turin and try and win it in the, the second leg. I would expect Juventus to go through with this, though. There's something about them. They're just a little bit of a juggernaut for me. Um, they've, they've just got a very good squad balance, squad depth. And I think the inertia of domestic success carries them through in moments like this. The final fixture, and perhaps one of the most intriguing, is Sevilla v Leicester. Um, not the worst draw that Leicester could have got, not the best either. Um, of course, Sevilla, a team now who are known for, for pressing high, they're going to leave spaces potentially for Leicester to exploit, you'd think, Chris? I would think so. I mean, it, it's a funny one, this, because some people have said, oh, Leicester should kind of go through quite comfortably. Sevilla are a very good side. Um, in, in my opinion, at least, I think they're a very good side. They had a very good performance at the weekend. Leicester, Leicester are a funny one to predict. That I think that five 0 defeat to Porto really sort of muddied their Champions League campaign in the respects of it was hard to then kind of grasp where they were on the sliding scale. You know, are they, are they a team that just maybe caught opponents by surprise at the start and now they've been found out and ruffled, <clears throat> or are they a team that actually is very well suited to this competition? Ah. Uh, Nothing is jumping out to me at this precise moment, to be very honest. Yeah, I think Sevilla will likely go through. That's my that's what my gut is telling me, but it's not a huge kind of this is a certainty result. I'm going to go for Leicester, you know, just to okay. be contrary. I'm just going to say they're going to... <laughs> Jamie Fardy, mate, he's, he's going to be on it. He's going to be on it this time in February. Um, but guys, there you go. Let us know what you think on Twitter at the front three of the, uh, of the Champions League draw for the last 16. I think it's going to be some very interesting fixtures. Of course, we'll be previewing and reviewing them all closer to the time. For now, though, let's talk MLS Cup, though, Chris. Yes. Um, of course, Seattle running out uh, the winners on penalties after 120 scoreless minutes on Saturday night. I mean, a lot of reaction to this one. Do you think Toronto were unlucky, though? Um, I've read stats that Seattle didn't have a single shot on target. No, they didn't. That's the first time that's happened in the MLS Cup final. Um, I think it's the first goalless one as well, actually, in, in the, the 20, 21 years that it's, it's been happening. Um yeah, definitely Toronto, I think, could, could be disappointed because they had good opportunities. But for the hand of Stephen Fry, formerly of Toronto, funnily enough, who actually signed for Seattle from Toronto three years ago on December 10th, the day of the final. But for, for kind of a great save from him on Josie Altidore, then they do win MLS Cup and they have something to, to succeed, uh, something to, to shout about. <sighs> the game was just very bitty in general, I think. Um, it was... 
It was very fractured. There wasn't really much fluency in the play. There were some very good players involved. I mean, that was some of the talk on the the pre-match press com- conference call that, you know, you've got so many stars in there. You've got Giovinco, Altidore, Bradley, Ladero, Valdez, Morris, even Ozzy Alonso, who's a very good passer of the ball. And just we didn't see a lot of passing, actually. We saw a lot of broken up play, a lot of niggly fouls. Giovinco, I think, was kind of targeted and roughhoused and the ref got a lot of criticism for that, for not protecting him. Um, but what you can say about Seattle is, look, they chose to to get rid of Ziggy Schmidt, which was a big call. They stuck by Schmetzer. I think what he did, Schmetzer, which is so important, is he changed them from a team that was so brilliant going forward but didn't have much consideration for what they were doing at the back to a team that focused on the defence first and then let the attack do what it needed to do. They became a really clinical side. They became a very well-organised side for the most part. And I think just in general, they they, they bonded together as a group. Um, the last kind of days of Ziggy Schmidt were not that enjoyable. Um, in fact, his last game, a 3-0 loss to Sporting Kansas City, I think it took them 81, maybe 89 minutes. It was definitely right towards the end before they even registered a shot. Um, so it, it's that idea again of, you know, changing mid-season, does it work? It has for them. Um, so I think Toronto will be disappointed massively because it was their chance to get a first MLS Cup and it was at home. But they can only kind of be disappointed with themselves because in the, the grand scheme of things, they did the football equivalent of letting it go to decision. Mm, feels like a missed opportunity for them. But do you think overall they've they've made progress this season? Yeah, massively. Their, their, their defence has improved some 20 goals, I think, compared to, to last season on the on the regular season, I should say at least. Um, Giovinco has shown that, again, he was not a, a one-season wonder in that regard. He was just as influential. It's just what you do next. This is the funny thing about MLS. So as, as we're recording this now on, on Monday, December 12th, Seattle have just confirmed who they're releasing for the season. So the dust hasn't really even settled on the final. And you're already confirming which options you're not picking up, who you maybe can't afford to keep, who who likely goes in the expansion draft that happens this week. So there'll be lots of changes. So that's the that's one of the reasons I think that more recently, especially, you haven't seen a lot of teams return to MLS Cup second year. Um, it's very much... I would say a little bit like other American sports where you get that one shot in the final and if you don't take it, you have to go almost to the back of the queue and wait a bit. Um, So how they improve next year is a big ask because I think a lot of the players that were sort of the piano carriers, if you will, guys like Drew Moore, Clint Irwin, they will be looked at by other teams and, and maybe even coveted by a few. What of the Sounders then? Obviously you pointed out Stefan Fryer there. Um, one of the heroes with that that save in, in extra mm. time to deny Josie Altador. Who are the other sort of standout players for you and who sort of brought them this victory? Roman Torres was fantastic. I mean, we talked about Stefan Fry, I think. I can wax lyrical about him. If you check my, my Twitter feed, the, the save that he made against Altador shows why he was so important. But Roman Torres as well. He's a, a Panamanian, missed the season through injury, came back and was just a rock, was just was nothing like Beckenbauer or Thiago Silva, was very much more like Ashley Williams, but it was exactly what they needed. Just someone to be aggressive, be physical, put the ball out, not take risks. And it meant that really Toronto, for all the attempts that they had, you would only say there was one or two, maybe even three that were good good efforts. And then there was that one great Altidore chance that Fry bailed them out for. 
Um, Ozzy Alonso, who had eight pain-killing injections, of course, across the course of the game, um, he was massive. And it, it, the thing is, as well, to, to digress slightly, it's, it's nice for for Ozzy because this is a guy that fled Cuba, um, chose to defect once he got to the states. I think it was on a preseason tour of some sort, and then hasn't been able to go back for obvious reasons. And he's been with the club for years, from their first game in, in 2009 right up until this point. You don't know what damage has been done with those pain-killing injections. It's something they'll have to watch. He's definitely coming back next season. Um, he got to captain them for the game. And so all of that together produces this beautiful story. But the fact that Torres got to score the winning penalty, that for me was kind of perfect as well. Because during the course of 120 minutes, he was faultless. There's nothing in my mind as I sit and talk about it now that think. Ah, yeah, he could have done that better. He made this mistake here. He just connected with everything, got rid of everything, and and made sure that it was really difficult for for Altidore and Giovinco to do anything in the final third. Some saying that the victory for Seattle was undeserved, though. Chris saying that you know mm-hmm. they didn't necessarily deserve to win. I mean, where do you stand on that one? Does it does it matter? Not really, um, because as as I kind of alluded to in my my piece for Yahoo. No one really remembers how teams won things for the most part. Um, or fans certainly don't care. I don't think Chelsea are disappointed that their first Champions League title came on the back of what was fairly defensive football um, and just hanging in there. I think they appreciate that they can now call themselves Champions of Europe. I mean, it's something they sing about, if I remember right, even now to most teams. You know, oh, you'll yeah, never sing that. And it was the same for, for Seattle. They needed to win the MLS Cup. They've got big ambitions, big aspirations. You talk to anyone at that club, as I do, and they put themselves on the global level. They want to try and be the biggest team in North America. You can't do that if you're not winning things. You can win the US Open Cup as much as you like. You can grab a supporter shield now and again. A lot of people have very different opinions on what's most important, the supporter shield, which is given to the, the winner of the regular season across those 34 games or winner of MLS Cup. They needed MLS Cup to round out the trophy cabinet a bit because that was the the big prize for a lot of people. Um, in terms of how they won it, you could sit and say, well, you know, why weren't you expansive? They played to their strengths, which were they were missing kind of one or two guys. The, the team is not as great as it could have been. Nelson Valdez, in fact, has just been released by the team was not really a great fit, but he was all they had up front. It was either him or Hercules Gomez, who isn't much better, to be very honest. So they they took, they essentially looked at it and said, look, our defence is very strong. Our midfield in, in the centre is very good. Let's build it on that. And look, Toronto simply couldn't break it down. So I, th- I think as much as you want to lament Seattle and say, you know, they didn't try and come out and play, you've got to look at Toronto and say, honestly, you didn't make the most of your chances. You had a lot of touches of the ball. Bradley was fairly impressive. But even the penalty shootout, it's 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 Bradley that really lets them down in the the first five kicks. That's that's kind of what you pay your designated players for. Nicholas Ladero fired his in fairly comfortably. Um, so that's yeah. I I think <clears throat> for any Toronto fan blaming Seattle, I think you've got to look internally. I think it's far too easy to turn around and say they didn't play the game that you wanted because no one's obligated to do that. Thanks to Chris. Straight off a flight, straight on the front three. The dedication needs to be recognised there. Uh, thanks, Chris, at K Hennage on Twitter. Go and follow him there. Uh, right, through the magic of podcasting, I'm now back with you, Lawrence, uh, to review the rest of the European action from the weekend. Let's start first off 
with the Lisbon derby, Benfica Sporting. Big sports. Uh, Benfica came away with a 2-1 win in the end. Uh, just, I love a good a good Lisbon derby. Who doesn't? The atmosphere uh, puts, puts the Premier League to shame, you know? Ultimately, though, Benfica went uh, ahead and then uh, Bastos pulled a goal back uh, for Sporting, but it wasn't enough. And they couldn't mount enough of a reply. Uh, it was too late, essentially. It was too late. It's almost a shame that, you know, uh, with such a fantastic derby, with the, the atmosphere and all the the associated uh, support you see with that, the, probably the thing that got the most uh, attention on Twitter was the, uh, the, the, pre- so. ma- the pre-match uh, festivities, in a way. It was definitely festive. Um, it was... Uh, so there was... They're sponsored by Emirates, right? Uh, Benfica. And so uh, the players, when they left the pitch, had to go through like a check-in sort of uh, <laughs> thing. Did they have to give was, boarding it was so passes? Weird. Oh. It, it was, it, from the looks of it, they just literally walked through and most of the players were just like, what is going on? Um, and it, it's just unusual. Basically, it looks as if a load of marketing people have just... Basically, uh, gone in a room and gone, what are the worst bits of travelling? Oh, yeah, that's right, the check-in bit. Yeah, let's remind everyone how shit travel is. Um, and then they also there's also a video of them doing a safety announcement before the game where they've got, like, you know, cabin crew, essentially, doing the, uh, the sort of pre-match build-up. And it sort of says to them, you know, put your uh, lug- hand luggage under your chairs, uh, put your mobile phones away, and support your team. And you're a bit like... Right. It's one of those things where it sounds so much better in your head. It just turns out terribly. It's um, it's an interesting, interesting brand sponsorship there. Um, it doesn't feel natural, but yeah, they've gone. Definitely. Let's just let's just force it. Let's get the check-in desk on the pitch. Uh, it's going to be fine. The amount of money just must be ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, it, you can even see though the, fa- the fact the the fans are just looking at it just like. What is going on? <laughs> right, right. And then they've also piped in cheering at the end of the video to make it sound like it's a popular scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Um, that was the Lisbon derby then. Uh, check-in included. Uh, elsewhere around Europe, we had in Check Serie it out. Uh, Juventus beat Joe Hart Torino 3-1. Uh, in yep. Derby de la Mole. Uh, That's all that matters. Gonzalo Higuain with two goals there. They're now seven points clear at the top of the table, although that lead could be cut to four after tonight's clash between second place Roma and third place AC Milan. Lazio, meanwhile, round out the top four. They've moved up after a Felipe Anderson inspired 3 1 win over Sampdoria. As we're in the Bundesliga, Leipzig finally lost, Lawrence. Um, what? Mönchengladbach finally won. Uh, the latter beating Mainz 1-0 on Sunday for their first win in nine attempts, thanks to an Andreas Christensen winner. While Ingolstadt became the first team to beat Leipzig this season with a 1-0 win, which obviously did Bayern Munich a favour. Um, Carlo Ancelotti's team now returning to the top of the table on goal difference, thanks to a 5-0 win over Wolfsburg. Uh, Lewandowski with two, uh, Costa with the other, Robin with a fantastic goal, the classic Robin cutting in from the right-hand side, curling it in to the top corner, uh, and Müller as well. Uh, Muller ending a 999-minute goal-scoring drought just in time. Um, and then finally, in Liga, you know, a thousand is a bit embarrassing, you know. Just uh, in time. It's embarrassing. Uh, finally, uh, in Liga, uh, 
uh, honors even in the weekend's big game. PSG held two at home against Nice. Uh, Unai Emery's team not only failing to make up the ground on their opponents, um, who are first, of course, but also second place Monaco, who comfortably beat Bordeaux 4-0 thanks to Radamel Falcao, who continued his revival with his first hat-trick in four years. El Chico is back, Lawrence. He's back, mate. He, he really is. He really is back. Yeah, uh, and I, no I also it. question whether he'd ever gone. Yeah, I mean, in many I just ways. think he's been playing for poor teams for a few years, Adam. As uh, as was his performance, he was nominated by us uh, for Player of the Weekend alongside Jamie Vardy and Dave's choice, Phil Jones. Uh, we put the vote out on Twitter <laughs> to find the front free player of the weekend coming in. Third place, LT Gray, Falcao, despite scoring that. <laughs> despite scoring I that think team, I know where this one's going. He only got 25% of the vote. In second okay. place, Phil Jones, 26% ah, of the vote. Justice was done. Jamie Vardy, after his fantastic performance, wins the vote. 49% of you voted for the Leicester striker, who scored his first ever Premier League hat-trick um, against Manchester City. So congratulations, Jamie Vardy. I'm sure he will be proud of that achievement. Anyway, guys, that does bring an end to this week's Front Free Podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening. We had a great time recording it. Great to have Stephen House on as a guest. Uh, I'm sure you'll all agree. Until Thursday though, Lawrence, where can the good people find you? The good people mm. uh, can go to Twitter, find me at Lostcast, L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, or at Statman Dave. Yes, go there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Bolton. Make sure you go and follow Chris as well. At- hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, Hennage, we'll see you on Thursday for a Q&A session. Until then, have a great week. <laughs>